Today on World Footprints, Lancaster, Pennsylvania combines the old and new in awesome and awe-inspiring ways. The Hans Herr House traces its German origins to 1719 and stands as the oldest homestead in Lancaster County. This house was built by Mennonites, and the Mennonites were the first people that settled this area. The longhouse next door to the Hans Herr House commemorates the Native American people and culture in this area. The Rockford Plantation served as the home of medical doctor and military general to George Washington, General Edward Hand. He had a small house, of course, of his medical practice in the first floor and the rest of his family in the rest of the floor. Sight and Sound Theaters began with the vision of Lynn and Shirley Eshelman to create theatrical Bible stories. Building on the legacy of her grandparents, Katie Miller shares her family's journey of faith. We have 625 employees, but out of that, there's 14 of us that are uh, family members. In between it all, we'll explore the life of the 15th president, James Buchanan, who once made his home in Lancaster. On World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, the Longhouse commemorates the Native American people who called this area home long before Europeans set foot in Lancaster County. The Rock Ford Plantation serves as the home of medical doctor and military general to George Washington, General Edward Hand. One of the finest examples of Georgian architecture still standing in Pennsylvania with 18th century origins, Rockford's elegance shines in the simplicity of its light and airy design. Sight and Sound Theater started in 1976 as a vision of Lancaster locals Glenn and Shirley Eshelman to bring Bible stories to life on the theatrical stage. With the mantle passed to the next generation, granddaughter Katie Miller shares her family's journey of faith and the genesis of making the Bible stories theatrical and entertaining for families of all faiths. Plus, we'll explore the life of President James Buchanan as we visit his Lancaster home, Wheatland. But first, the Hands Her House traces its dramatic roots to 1719 and stands as the oldest homestead in Lancaster County. But before we step inside Lancaster's oldest structure, let's learn about the farm and the families who lived here from our guide, David Schrock, as we go inside the 1892 farmhouse. Well, I want to explain a little bit of background uh, here, kind of looking at the map before we go into the, down to the house just so you know some context of what we're going to see. And so this house was built by Mennonites, and the Mennonites were the first people that settled this area, and they settled here in 1711. But prior to that, let me just explain kind of who they are, why they came. In, uh, in Europe, we had in the 1500s, 1517, we had the Reformation, and that's where the Protestants split off from the Catholics, and we had in Switzerland, some folks who uh, said, okay, we kind of like uh, what's, some of these things that are happening here. Ulrich Zwingli was a priest who split from the Catholic Church, and they said, but we want to uh, make even a few more changes and make them faster than what some of the other folks are doing. They became known as Anabaptists. Uh, Anabaptist means rebaptize or baptize it again. That's one of the things that they did was adult baptism. And so they were distinct religiously. They weren't quite, they weren't Catholic. They weren't quite Protestant either, and the authorities, the state, really didn't know what to do with them. And so they, uh, they were often persecuted. Many of them were killed for their faith, uh, for identifying with this church. Uh, they called themselves the Swiss Brethren in many cases, uh, and they were, they were tortured, persecuted, things like that. And so life was unpleasant in the 15 and 1600s, uh, but then uh, 
Eventually, William Penn, he uh, starts what he called the Holy Experiment in the New World here, Pennsylvania, Penn's Woods, where you could come and worship there without any fear of persecution, regardless of what kind of faith you were. And so these Mennonites, including the Hers, as a group of ten families, that in 1710, they traveled up the Rhine River, stayed for a little bit in England in kind of a refugee camp, and then they sailed up around England. England and France were at war at the time, and so they couldn't go through the, uh, the, sh the shortcut there. But they went up around and sailed, landed here 1710, traveled west, as far west as had been settled by any Europeans at that point in this area, kind of the frontier. Uh, in 1711, they, they, uh, they arrived in, in what we now call Lancaster County. And so they, uh, they built probably some small log houses at first, and then after a few years had uh, enough materials and wealth to build uh, some bigger houses. And the house that you're going to see here shortly was the, uh, it's the oldest still standing dwelling in Lancaster County, built just a few years after this was set up. Uh, so that's what brought these people here. This was a working farm from 1711 when it was uh, first settled until the 1960s when it was uh, the late 60s. It was sold uh, from the Huber family, the ones farming it at the time, to the Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society and uh, they turned it into a uh, museum. And uh, so it was always farmed. At first it was farmed by the Herr family and then the Huber family who were actually descendants of the Herr. So it was always the same family that uh, farmed this. Many of the buildings that you see here are original to when this was a, uh, a farm. Some of the buildings have been moved from other sites uh, not far from here to kind of complete the, uh, the exhibit. Uh, but it still retains the feel of a Lancaster County farm, at least how it would have been in the uh, mid-century. And so behind me, you can see the Her House. And as I said earlier, that is the oldest surviving structure in Lancaster County, 1719. So we're very close to it being 300 years old. Standing outside the Hans Her House, we discover what makes it so special. And I'll just uh, I'll point out a few things that we see on the outside here before uh, before we go in. Um, so as I said, the oldest house in Lancaster County. Uh, that makes it somewhat significant. I think probably what makes this house the most special, or what makes it really special and most significant, is the fact that this is one of uh, the best examples, if not the best example that we have in the United States of Germanic architecture. It's kind of a medieval Germanic style. If you would travel to Germany and go to some, uh, some towns or villages where they have houses that were built in the 15 or 1600s, you'd see houses that look exactly like this. There aren't many like it in America, uh, and this is one of the best preserved because this house, it was lived in until about 1900. And then after that, the folks who were farming here, they decided to treat this basically as a barn. They didn't, no one lived here. They just stored things inside there. And that's actually really good because it was never modernized. They never put a bathroom inside or, you know, a kitchen sink or anything like that. Uh, never added a garage. You can think of all the things that would have happened if they would have modernized it, but it always just kind of sat as it was had been. And so there's no kitchen sink. When you want water, you have to pump it at the well right there. Before we go in, I'll just point out the uh, above the door here. 
the uh, date stone. 17CHHR19. So that's 1719 for when it was built, and then Christianher is the name of the builder. Now we call it the Hansher House. It was actually built by Christianher. Once we're inside, I'll, uh, I'll explain why uh, we have those two names associated with the house. Check out the key. That's my favorite. That's a real key right there. All right, come on in. Just inside the door, we find ourselves inside a kitchen that transports us back in time, way back. Well, here we are in the kitchen, and of course, the first thing you notice when you come in here is a massive fireplace. And people see this, and they uh, they assume oh, a big fireplace means a big fire, uh, but that's actually not true. They would have uh, they would have only had small fires in this, uh, at least right here, on this raised hearth. And we know that because in the fireplace they built what we call a fireplace crane. And it's this, uh, it's this thing that swings back and forth. You can hang a kettle off of there. And uh, they made it out of wood. And it's still there. Imagine having something in wood in a fireplace. Well, it's, you'd think it would catch on fire, but it never did because they only had low coals here. And so uh, this is the original 1719 fireplace crane. It's darkened from smoke, but it was never, never caught on fire. So they had small fires there for cooking to actually heat the house in the winter. To keep it warm, they would have a fire back here. Uh, and so you see this hole that goes back in the wall. Uh, you'll see what that looks like on the other side. It makes kind of what we consider a stove on the other side. And so that is how they would have heated the house. Smoke, of course, goes up the chimney. If you want to, you can stand inside the chimney and look straight up. Yeah, it's just a big old chimney. As we stand in the stuba, the sitting room, we learn how the name Hans Herr became attached to the house. Why do we call it Hans Herr House when Christian Herr was actually the name of the builder? And so the folks who first settled here, there's uh, 10 families who settled here in 1711, uh, the, the original European settlers, uh, Hans Herr was a member of that group. And uh, we think he was kind of like the leader of that group. We would call him the, the patriarch. He was a Mennonite minister, so he had some authority in the church. And he probably helped to kind of organize the group coming over here. But when, uh, when they got here, he was an older man. And when this house was built, he was quite old. He died in 1725, just six years after this house was built. But we think he probably lived here, but it was actually built by his son, Christian Herr. And so Christian Herr was actually the one, kind of the main householder here, and he would have lived in here until the mid-1700s. Uh, but the folks, local folks here always called it the Hanser House, and we think that's because Hanser, the old bishop, the leader of the original group, he probably lived here at the end of his life, uh, although we don't actually have any, uh, any physical evidence of that, but we can assume that was probably true. So we call it the Hanser House. We can also call it the Christian Herr House. It's, uh, it's kind of so this, uh, this room that we're in uh, would have been used as a dining room. You can see the, the table set up here uh, like they probably would have had it. It may have been used as a school. Uh, we don't know that for sure either, but uh, it was the biggest house in this area at the time. And so it's uh, reasonable that the kids would have come here for uh, learning how to read and write. Uh, but this also would have been used for church services. This is the oldest still standing Mennonite meeting house in the Western Hemisphere. When the Mennonites were in Europe, uh, they were not allowed to have their own church buildings. Uh, and so they just met in homes for church. And so when they came to America, that tradition continued where rather than having a church building, 
If it was Sunday and you wanted to go to church, you'd go to the minister's house probably. And so Christian Herr, he was a uh, minister, and so he probably would have preached from where I'm uh, sitting right now. You can imagine the congregation sitting here listening to, uh, to Christian Herr preaching. Listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, we're exploring Lancaster's oldest house, the Hans Herr House, with David Schrock. As David continues the Herr history, a clock in the corner of the stuba holds an insight into the Herr family. In this room here, um, one thing that I want to point out is in the back there, and you can hear it ticking, it's the clock. Now, I've been talking about Christian Herr, the man who built this house. So when he died, he dies in 1749. When he died, they made a list of everything that he owned, all of his possessions, and so that's how we've furnished the house today, according to what's listed on that inventory. One of the things listed was a clock and case, and so that's what we have in the back there, a clock and case. And that's a very nice clock right there. Uh, it's from the mid-1700s. And the fact that Christian Herr owned a clock like that uh, the time that he died, it says something important. It says that he was actually quite wealthy. Uh, because if you're just a farmer in the 1700s in Lancashire County, you don't need a clock like that. You only have something that nice if you have a lot of money. Heading over to the bedroom, we are introduced to an old-fashioned rope bed and learn the origins of a bedtime expression tied to it. This would have been a typical bed in the 1700s. Anyone know what expression we get from a rope bed? still say it today. We say sleep tight because if you have a rope bed, the, uh, the ropes have to be tight, exactly. Or else it sags in the middle, it's uncomfortable, you want your bed to be tight, and so we still say sleep tight. So in this room you can see the plasters pulled away from the ceiling if you look up, and that's to show what the inside of the ceilings look like. And so what we have there is those are slats of wood that are in a groove running in the, uh, in the joist, and they have rye straw wrapped around them, and it's caked with mud. And that is an old form of insulation. Insulation helps keep the heat uh, from just going up and out of the house, and so that helped to insulate the house and keep it warm in the winter. This is where they would have kept their clothing. Notice there are no closets in the house. The German, it's, that's right, we keep the shoes in there too. It's typical for Germans to uh, not have closets, at least in this time period, but to just have furniture to keep things in. Now, in Christian Herr's inventory at the time of his death, it lists not only what he owned, but the value of everything he owned, how much it was worth. And so the, uh, the clothes press, that's what this piece of furniture is called, the clothes press was listed as being worth five pounds in British currency, kind of like we have dollars, five pounds. And his clothing was worth 10 pounds. And so the clothing inside here was worth twice as much as this beautiful piece of furniture, which is hard for us to imagine today. Because our clothing is cheap, furniture, if you want nice furniture, it's more expensive. Heading upstairs, the unique construction features of the house are revealed. We can go upstairs, follow me. These steps are unusual. They're simply logs with uh, some space carved out for your feet pegged into a, a diagonal beam that goes down here. This is a medieval style of staircase that I've seen in southern Germany and Switzerland, but it's the only example of this style of stairs 
in the United States. And so they're very unusual, they're very old. This shows the construction of the house, how all of these beams are held together. This is what we call mortise and tenon construction. Notice when you look at all of these uh, rafters and joists, there are no nails anywhere. It's all held together by wooden pegs. So you see this, it has a hole in it. I stick it in here. This also has a hole in it. You stick the peg through both and you can pound it in real tight. And it's a very nice solid construction uh, that holds together the frame of the house very nicely. Well, we should head down to the cellar. That's the last part of the house I'm gonna show you. Actually, a little bit warmer than outside right now, and uh, it it stays this temperature pretty much all year round, which is really nice because then in the summer it stays fairly cool. You can keep your fruits, vegetables, meats. That's what's hanging on that rack there, smoked meat. Keep those down here. This is like a refrigerator, and in the winter time it'll stay cool, but it won't freeze. It'll stay pretty much this temperature all year round. So this is like the refrigerator back in the 1700s. To learn more about the Hans Herr house, visit hansherr.org. We'll also have a link for that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. this destination spotlight, we visit Wheatland, the Lancaster home of the 15th President of the United States, James Buchanan, as we learn of the home's history and Buchanan's life there from Bob Fee. It was built in 1828 for Mr. William Jenkins on a plot of 156 acres out here in the countryside. Ten years later, he sold it to his son-in-law, Thomas Potter, for $9,000. And in 1845, Potter sold it to William Moore's Meredith. And in 1848, Meredith sold it to James Buchanan. When Meredith sold it, he was on his way to Washington to serve as Secretary of the Treasury in Zachary Taylor's administration. Whereas Buchanan was returning to Lancaster from Washington, having served as Secretary of State in James Polk's administration. So it was going from one cabinet member to another, right here in Lancaster. When Buchanan bought it, the property had been reduced to 22 and a half acres, and he paid $6,750 cash. We're proud to be able to say that about 75 to 80 percent of the artifacts here in the house have a provenance relating to Buchanan or a family member. Now, James Buchanan was born April 23, 1791, in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania. It's about 100 miles to the west of here in Franklin County. He was the second of 11 children born to James Buchanan Sr. and Elizabeth Spear Buchanan. His father emigrated here from County Donegal, Ireland, ran a trading post there in Cove Gap later moved his family into nearby Mercersburg, where he was quite a successful merchant. When Buchanan was 16, he enrolled at Dickinson College in Carlisle, same general vicinity. Graduated there just two years later. His ambition was to go into the law. So he came here to Lancaster to read for the law. And reading for the law was a common thing to do in the era. There were only two law schools in the country at the time. And Lancaster was a logical place to come read for the law in that it was the capital of Pennsylvania at the time, from 1799 to 1812. 
And I suspect you folks are aware that Lancaster's also been our nation's capital. Did not know. Did not, not know. No, I did okay. not know. <laughs> For one day. <laughs> September 27, 1777. What was going on in this country in 1777? Revolutionary War. We were having this little skirmish with the British. We call it the Revolutionary War. The British were encroaching on Philadelphia. Congress fled here to the west. Paused here in Lancaster. Meant for one day. So we claim it. Hmm. Then moved on across the Susquehanna to York, Pennsylvania, where they met for several months and drafted the Articles of Confederation while they were there. As we finished our tour of the Hans Herr House and grounds, we made our way to the Long House just across the street. The Long House commemorates the Native American people, the Kanoi, Lenape, Susquehannock, and others who called this area home. A visit to the house gives insight into how the indigenous people lived and thrived in the area long before the first European set foot in Lancaster County as we reconnect with David Schrock. The longhouse, it is of course a, a reconstruction. Uh, there are no surviving longhouses uh, in this area today, uh, but there's plenty of evidence here locally archaeological evidence of what these look like, the size, the shape, the materials. And so uh, based on that, we were able to make a longhouse that we think uh, fairly accurately represents the kind of buildings they would have used. And so it's a fun, uh, it's a fun contrast to the Her House because in the Her House you walk in and you say this is the kitchen but it looks different from my kitchen because it doesn't have a sink or whatever uh, this kind of structure is just it is totally different uh, you walk in there is no kitchen there is just one room and it wasn't just a family that lived here it was lots of families that lived in one structure and it just blows your kind of schemas of how you have uh, for a house the longhouse resembles a huge curved tent almost like the cover of a covered wagon Let's learn more about its distinctive architecture. This is the kind of structure that they would have lived in um, 15, 1600s. And so, yeah, just a few comments on the structure that we see here, kind of the, the shape of it. Uh, it's obviously, it's a very tall structure, and that might look like a waste of space at first. It, uh, in a sense it is, but it's, uh, it's functional to make it that tall because there is no chimney. They would have simply had a fire in the middle or probably several fires to heat to cook no chimney so the smoke just rises to the top of the structure keeps the uh the ground level here clear at least that's the idea although i'm sure there was plenty of uh it was very smoky it's reasonable to think that a lot of the native americans had uh, some difficulties with, uh, you know, eyes and breathing just because they lived around smoke. Because the structure is open and airy, there are no walls to designate rooms, showing that many families essentially shared the same space for cooking, living, and sleeping as a community. So each kind of bunk that we see here, uh, that would have actually been for, uh, for a family. Or if a family's large enough, they would have used uh, a couple. But as I said outside, we're used to thinking of a house representing a family. A family lives in a house, whereas uh, the Native American mindset, it is a, a much larger community, all lives in this, uh, this one structure. And so in a, uh, in a village, you probably would have had several of these. Uh, it would have been uh, more than just one. It would have always been built near a water source. 
And so that's what we see here in Lancaster County, near the Susquehanna River, near the Conestoga River. Uh, that's where we find a lot of evidence of Native American habitation. The way this is uh, set up in here, the uh, fire pit is in the middle, and everything to the north of the fire pit, uh, or at least in terms of our um, artifacts, the artifacts represent what they would have used pre-European contact. South of the fire pit, the other end represents what they would have used post-European contact. And so, we look at the artifacts here, pre-European contact, it is, uh, it is gourds, it's stone, it's, uh, it's bone, feather, uh, everything that's readily found in nature. It's, uh, it is, much of it's remarkably lightweight, and that allowed them to be a fairly mobile culture. They would have moved around somewhat. They weren't nomadic in the sense uh, like the Plains Indians were, but they would have lived in a structure like this uh, for uh, probably five, 10 years, 15 years, and then uh, moved on to uh, a different area once they exhausted the soil from agriculture, and uh, yeah, they would have moved on to a different area. And so, yeah, these are the types of things they would have used uh, for uh, yeah, daily life pre-European contact. And of course, skins play a large role. Rather than having uh, cloth spun from wool or cotton or flax, they would have worn skins and the, the door to the longhouse would have been probably a deer skin. And so we have various skins here, the kinds of animals that would have lived here. Some of them, or many of them, are still here today. Uh, the big one, the largest one that we have here is bison. Hmm. A lot of people don't realize that we did have bison in Pennsylvania uh, up, until, uh, up until the 1600s. At least in western Pennsylvania, there was a kind of a woodlands bison that lived here. Uh, no longer a species. Uh, it is extinct. Um, but we did have bison here in the east. Now what tribes would have been in this area? So this area in the late 1600s and then in the 1700s would have primarily been what we call the Conestoga Indians. And so they were never a large or powerful tribe. And uh, if, we, if we go into the 1600s, we have the, uh, the Iroquois, the Susquehannock, Lenape. Uh, these are major tribes, especially to the north and east of here. Um, but as with any country or any, uh, any, any power, uh, they, have, they have peaks where they are powerful and, and significant. But then, uh, especially the Susquehannocks, they dropped in influence and power uh, in the, uh, throughout the 1600s and many of them kind of splintered off, uh, and there were a number of tribes, uh, remnants of tribes which were once larger, they banded together in this area to make what we call the, are called the Conestoga Indians. And so they were the descendants of a number of different tribes, uh, and so they would have lived here late 1600s, uh, early 1700s, and yeah, by the, uh, the mid-1700s, they were the only, the only Native Americans to live here. The uh, experience of the Native Americans in this area in the 1710s, 20s, 30s, between uh, Native Americans and Europeans, the relationship was fairly friendly. William Penn was very intentional about uh, treating the Native Americans fairly, and he had a good re reputation among the Native Americans. Uh, but as time went on, uh, throughout the 1700s, once we get into the 30s, 40s, 50s, 
uh, the Native Americans are sensing, and it was true that their, their land was getting whittled away uh, into smaller and smaller pieces. If you think about the difference in worldview, the difference in understanding between Native American uh, land ownership, if you will, and European land ownership, as Europeans, uh, we came thinking, well, if we draw a straight line from here to here to here to here, and we pay a certain amount of money, the land is ours, and we own it, just like you can own a, you know, a horse or a house. But the Native Americans didn't have that same concept of, of land ownership. Uh, they would certainly have tribes that controlled certain areas of land, uh, but it was never a, a question of ownership like, uh, like the Europeans brought with them. And so you see those two different worldviews, I think, contributing to uh, misunderstanding at least and probably exploitation in a lot of cases. We will continue our visit to the Lancaster region in a moment. If you want more information on the Longhouse, visit LancasterLonghouse.org. We will also have a link to this show page on WorldFootprints.com. Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, the Rockford Plantation served as the home of medical doctor and military general to George Washington, General Edward Han. One of the finest examples of Georgian architecture still standing in Pennsylvania with 18th century origins, Rockford's elegance shines in the simplicity of its light and airy design. And later, Sight and Sound Theater started in 1976 as the vision of Lancaster locals Glenn and Shirley Eshelman to bring the Bible stories to life on the theatrical stage. With the mantle passed to the next generation, granddaughter Katie Miller shares her family's journey of faith and the genesis of making the Bible stories theatrical and entertaining for families of all faith. Plus, if you want to travel deeper and uncover hidden gems of history like the Hans Herr House and President James Buchanan's Wheatland, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. Plantation served as the home of medical doctor and military general to George Washington, General Edward Hand. One of the finest examples of Georgian architecture still standing in Pennsylvania with 18th century origins, Rockford's elegance shines in the simplicity of its light and airy design. Let's go inside to learn about General Hand and his house. Born in 1744 in Clydeff, Ireland, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing Clydeff, uh, his family actually came from a decent amount of money, and um, because of that, he was able to go off to medical school and be trained as a doctor. Now, once he graduated from medical school, he did not immediately um, become a medical doctor. What ended up happening was, is that the British Navy picked him up immediately. Uh, he had the training they were looking for, and they decided to train him as a medical officer. So he kind of went into the medical profession, but not in a way I'm sure he'd originally planned. Sailing with the British Navy over to the 13 colonies, he was actually with the British Navy for quite a while, not fully leaving them until about 1774, and when he did, he decided to settle over 
over here in Lancaster City. Uh, he had a small house, of course, of his medical practice in the first floor and the rest of his family in the rest of the floors. Um, he actually had eight children with his wife, Catherine Hand, who he affectionately would call Kitty. Um, there are five girls and three boys. One little girl does unfortunately pass away in Lancaster City, and one little boy unfortunately does pass away here. Sarah Hand is the eldest daughter. Dorothy Hand is the second eldest daughter, and we actually have a portrait of her later on in the tour I'm going to get to show you. And then John Hand, he's the eldest son, but he's the third eldest overall. And then followed by Jasper Hand, who I have a copy of a portrait I can show you in a little bit. John Hand was one of the last hand owners of the house you're in right now. In 1775, of course, the American Revolution is coming to fruition, and he decides to join up with General Washington as a two-star general. He does rise through the ranks very quickly, commands the Pennsylvania 1st Regiment. I can just sweep quick here, we actually have, of course, his original military epaulets, the two-star ones, on display for you a little bit later on in the tour, and we also have a copy of his battle flag of the Pennsylvania 1st Regiment. But he's in several notable battles. I'm sure this is a very famous painting you guys have all seen, Washington Cross in the Delaware. That is General Hand right there holding his hat. So he did make his way in to this very, very famous painting. Of course, I've had people say, well, you know, Hunter, how do we know he's in this painting? Well, you have to take a little bit of historic, you know, imaginativeness to kind of like, it's kind of, you know, historical fiction, if you will, because did this exact scene happen in history? You know, we know Washington crossed the Delaware. If you guys are any familiar with the river, Washington would not have been able to stand at the helm of this boat, he would have been in the river immediately. Kind of up for interpretation. I would absolutely love to see if this actually happened, but it probably didn't. That's probably the artist, you know, imagining a little bit. Now, of course, he is with the American Army for quite a while, not really um, retiring until about 1784. Now, when he does retire in 1784, he has done his military service, moves back to Lancaster City and decides to become a politician. Because mayor of Lancaster for several years, um, serves on the Pennsylvania Congress, which kind of predates the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Um, he's always doing this as a Federalist and just has a couple of nitbit things here and there. Rockford, where does Rockford come in? So Rockford, the house you're in right now, think of this as his retirement home because he's only here for about eight to 10 years before he passes away. 1787, he decides that the small house he has in Lancaster City is um, too small. So he has this begin the process to being built. Um, he doesn't move his family in here until about 1792. You also see signs that say 1794. I think out here on the post it says 94, but down on the sign at the base of the hill I think it says 1792. So even we can't agree when exactly he was here, but that would only mean that he would have been here about ten, 8 to 10 years before passing away. Of course, he does pass away in 1802 of cholera-like symptoms. Cholera-like symptoms means a whole host of things could have been wrong with him. Uh, dysentery, he could have actually had cholera, um, upper respiratory, you name it. But before he passes away, while he's here, while he's in his retirement, if you will, he's running a tenant farm operation. If you guys are unfamiliar with the tenant farm arrangement, in layman's terms, what you would do is you would work for a set amount of time, and whatever you yield your crop, you'll do, usually give a percentage of that to the master's home, if you will, in this case, the general hand. And we believe that was the standard arrangement they would have had. He had 177 acres of property. We are on 33 of those original 177. Basically, from the parking lot over to the tree line, wrap all the way around, following the tree, following the tree line, down to the base of the hill, those are the 33 acres. 
We actually do not have any record of what was grown here, um, but we can assume just looking from you know historical records and kind of what is still grown today, corn, beans, squash, pumpkin, uh, wheat, things along those nature. And, but we do know he wasn't into any kind of serious animal husbandry. Horses would have been here for travel, but like hogs and cattle would not, wasn't really making any money off of them. As beautiful as the home is, tragedy holds a significant place in the Hand family history at Rockford, starting with the passing of General Hand. So he does pass away in 1802. Two years later, his wife passes away of cholera. That was absolutely confirmed. Now, John Hand takes over, being the eldest male in the house to take over. A Jasper has moved out at this point, and most of the young ladies who are still alive have also moved out and gotten married. About two of them remain unmarried, but most of them are out of Pennsylvania. Uh, when John Hand takes over, he's only here for three years, and in 1807, he actually takes his own life. Uh, he was not married, did not have any kids. Uh, we can hypothesize all day what led him to do this, uh, being maybe he was very close to his parents, he was lonely. We have no way of actually knowing, but he does take his own life in 1807. And really, he's the last hand owner of the household you guys are in today. Tenant farmers do move in throughout the years, but it's uh, more so of a squatter basis. Absentee landlords mostly run the property, and some years they let tenant farmers in here, some years they don't. And that just kind of is a rinse and repeat cycle. It's about uh, 1950. So we fast forward quite a bit of time. Um, for what you guys have been able to see, would you agree this property is fairly beautiful? It's a very nice property. So be happy to know in 1950, the city of Lancaster decided that this would be one of the best areas for a trash incineration plant in a landfill. So they were going to put here. And I believe the county park was already established. So imagine what a landfill with an incineration plant. If you're familiar with Toy Story 3, that fiery thing at the end, that is a trash incineration plant. So one of those smack in the middle of the hill here, you know, for all the smells and all the sounds that come along with something like that. The Junior League of Lancaster stepped in and was like, you cannot do this. General Hand is very important to the revolution. This is a historic marker, you know our local history. We cannot just throw that away. But it took him a very long time to actually fight for this plantation. Eventually winning over custody in about uh, 1959, 1960, and the renovations began. Um, but as we found when we began our renovations that the house was in remarkable condition. We did not actually have to do a whole lot. And because of that, we can say today that this house is 95% original to when General Hand is living here. For more about the Rockford Plantation and the life of General Edward Han, visit rockfordplantation.org. We'll also have a link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, we will continue our visit to President James Buchanan's Wheatland in Lancaster with Bob Fee as we learn more about the 15th President of the United States. When we started the tour, you mentioned that Buchanan was a bachelor. Was there any controversy with his status at the time? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, well... Well, he was, uh, he was engaged in the fall of 1819 to be married uh, to Ann Coleman. 
daughter of Robert Coleman, wealthiest man in Pennsylvania, or at least certainly one of them, uh, at the time made his fortune in auto, or fortune uh, owning iron forges. Uh, but in that fall of 1819, Buchanan was rather neglectful of the relationship when he went to Philadelphia to attend to matters of, uh, in his law practice and uh, uh, some political issues and such. And on his return to Lancaster, his first stop was not at the Coleman Mansion, but rather that of a friend who happened not to be home, but his wife was, and his wife's young unmarried sister. The teacups that witnessed this began their work. Mm. Word got back to Miss Coleman, who became enraged. Now, she was someone who was known to have the wide mood swings. She called off the engagement. Went to Philadelphia to visit her sister. Five days later, she died. Mm. The physician uh, indicated that this was the first time he'd seen somebody die of hysteria. Some think that she took an overdose of laudanum. Maybe it was intentional, maybe it was not. We don't know that for certain. Buchanan was crushed. He never married. I'm kind of giving you the short version yeah. here. But <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, I'm not sure if that's included in Updike's uh, play that he wrote. Oh, okay. Uh. Sight and Sound Theater started in 1976 as the vision of Lancaster locals Glenn and Shirley Eshelman to bring Bible stories to life on the theatrical stage. With the mantle passed to the next generation, granddaughter Katie Miller shares her family's journey of faith and the genesis behind making Bible stories theatrical and entertaining for families of all faiths. We are known um, for bringing the Bible to life on stage. We are passionate about Bible stories, the messages in them, and our heart every day, what gets us up in the morning, is the opportunity to present them in a way that's engaging and hopefully spectacular. We want to do these stories justice. They're huge stories, you know, Moses and parting the Red Sea and Jonah and the whale, uh, Samson and the collapsing temple. And we just, we want the opportunity to use the space that we have and the resources that we've been given uh, to be able to um, tell them in an immersive way. So we're known for being larger than life. We have a 300-foot wraparound stage and 2,000 seats in our theater. And the shows really do um, kind of happen all around you. There's live animals that run up and down the aisles and actors using the aisles. And the shows literally kind of spill out over the front of the stage and into the audience. And um, it creates an entire experience. And we want our audience to feel like they are truly in the middle of the story themselves. Um, so that's what we do. That's what we're known for um, and hope to continue to keep doing. And it all happened very much um, in a lot of ways by accident. We know it wasn't an accident, but it's how it feels sometimes. Um, my grandparents, Glenn and Shirley Eshelman, started Sight and Sound just over 40 years ago. Um, and uh, through a through using photography, actually, is what really kicked everything off. It was in the 70s, and they were, um, my grandfather was a scenic photographer and started putting slideshows together for his 
uh, church and some other venues, schools and things like that. And um, throughout the course of time, just started adding different elements to the multimedia productions. Like at the time, uh, theater and the the use of multimedia in theater was relatively um, a new experience for a lot of people. And so when they opened their first theater, um, it was just the multimedia until they started adding some of the other live elements. And it just really grew from there. There was always a ministry focus, but the the doing the larger-than-life Bible stories really came to fruition um, more in the 90s and into the last part of our season. Now, you mentioned that your grandfather and your grandmother uh, basically birthed sight and sound uh, theaters. And your grandfather, as I understand, grew up on a dairy farm outside of Lancaster. Uh, What's it like to be associated with such a great family legacy? Um, Well, it's honestly, it's an honor. And we, we laugh because we are in the middle of farm country. We're surrounded by beautiful farms and many Amish families, even though my family wasn't Amish growing up. Um, and it's a community that we're really grateful to be a part of. And there's so much about, um, you know, the way that I was raised and being in this type of a community. Lancaster is known as one of the entrepreneurial capitals in the nation um, mm-hmm. because of just the culture and the history. Um, and so even though it is a legacy that I'm grateful to be a part of, it's certainly um, not without its, you know, its place in the community and in a community of many entrepreneurs and family businesses and things like that. So, um, you know, it's something that is so ingrained in just who we are and the work ethic and the doing it together as a family. Um, lots of fun memories from growing up of, you know, when we were smaller and mostly just family running, running things, being a kid and um, helping to hand out programs before the show and then running around backstage to put on costumes and go out on, you know, do the scenes. And then when the show would end, we'd all come together and clean the bathrooms and clean the theater and start all over again for the next show of the day. And it was it was honestly so fun. <laughs> There's not many memories I have that aren't filled with just lots of fun times and, and good things. And we worked really, really hard, but we had a lot of fun doing it. So it's, you know, been a like I said, it's a huge honor to have it a part of my life and has taught me so much and a lot of um, values that I really hope to be able to instill in my own children. Speaking of her children, Katie expands on the role of the family in Sight and Sound today. There's a number of us that are involved in the family. My children are actually, they're, my oldest two are 11 and 9 years old, and they're the first of the fourth generation to be involved. They both are in the cast of Jonah this year, which has been really fun to watch them kind of... Um, live, uh, you know, and kind of relive some of what my childhood felt like. Um, Some of my cousins are also children and in the show right alongside them, just like I would have experienced growing up. And um, there's a number of us. I think right now there's 14 of us. We have 625 employees, but out of that, there's 14 of us that are uh, family members and involved here on a day-to-day basis. The production put on by Sight and Sound are impressive, and a lot of time, effort, and energy go into creating the shows. It takes about three and a half years for us to produce um, a show from the time that we, you know, choose the next story that we're going to tell and start with our writers and producers here in-house. And we do approximately like 95% of the production in-house. So we have, you know, our um, story team and our, um, that does the writing and producing. We have our designers and our set designers, costume designers, lighting designers, and then we do the construction of all of those elements right here. Um, literally, I'm looking out the window <laughs> of my <laughs> office while I'm talking to you, looking at the the door to the costume shop. I'm right across from it. Um, so we build the costumes here. We build our set pieces here. 
um, like most, the majority of the production is um, not only designed but also produced and built right here, which is one of the things that um, makes us as an organization just um, very unique, especially in the theater world, and then also just, um, you know, the ability that we have to be so collaborative and have our costume designer, you know, sitting right beside the office of our lighting designer who's right around the corner from our set designer and <laughs> everybody's just rubbing shoulders and elbows every single day and we have you know our morning huddles where everyone's just kind of giving really quick updates it allows us the opportunity to be significantly collaborative in a creative environment which is unusual for this type of you know in the performing arts a lot of times it's you're hiring a specific costume shop or designer, you know, to do different things for you. And here we, we do it um, with our amazing team of people. Mm-hmm. It certainly takes a village. Um, I also know that you have a, uh, a conservatory for those aspiring actors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, we are in our fifth year this year. And um, just, you know, kind of this new budding aspect of of what we do here and something that we're becoming more passionate about as time goes on. Um, The performing arts are not necessarily known for being a light and a a place of, of, um, you know, of values and things like that that are really important to us. And so the opportunity that we have to provide um, an environment for budding artists, performing artists to come in and learn um, in a Christ-focused way to not only, you know, how to do their craft and to continue to develop themselves as artists, but also develop their character and and who they are and who they've been created to be uh, right alongside as they're learning um, how to be better performers is something that has been, a like, just, we can't even talk about how much of a joy it's been. Mm. And um, it's it's very small right now because we're just in our very beginning years. We have about 10 to 12 students every year. And those students come in and they have classes in the morning and sometimes in the evenings after shows. And then they actually perform on stage right alongside our professional cast. Uh, And so they're able to, you know, have to learn in the morning and then go right into doing shows for the afternoon and be able to apply daily what they're learning in their classes. And a lot of our cast members, you know, we have many that have their master's in theater and things like that. So a lot of times, um, many of our instructors, not all of them, but a significant number of our instructors for the conservatory are actually cast members or other employees here that are rubbing shoulders with them every day. So it's just, um, it is able to continue to grow them as performing artists, but also just as people and develop their their personhood and their character um, just right alongside their growth as a professional as well. So it's been a huge gift to us and we are excited to see where it grows in the future. Some of those cast members are animals. What are some of the challenges of working with real animals uh, in some of your productions? Sure. Yes, our animals are the absolute most beloved aspect of our Sight and Sound family. Um, We have a barnyard right out behind our theater here that's one of our favorite um, places for, you know, our employees to pop over when they're having a 10-minute break. And there's nothing like, you know, having a stressful moment at work and being able to go outside and pet a llama for a couple of minutes (laughs) (laughs) as a way of brightening your day. Um, So, yes, but along with the fun and the joy that they bring, they obviously have challenges, too, and they're messy sometimes. They don't always do exactly what they're supposed to do, but... 
that's part of what makes live theater live theater. And um, they are, inc- are tra- and trained incredibly well. We have a whole team of animal caretakers as well as animal trainers that work with these animals, sometimes for years at a time before they're ready to go on stage. Um, it's really important for us that our animals are comfortable and having fun in the process for themselves as well. So we take a lot of time uh, to acclimate them to the stage. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Some people make a pilgrimage every year to Sight and Sound, and we met a woman who, for years, has traveled to Lancaster to see every new production from Sight and Sound. Katie shares what keeps people coming back. Stories unite people, and we often say Jesus was the was the master storyteller. He used stories, he used parables, he was known for that. He used, he took basic things and um, told stories about them to help people understand. And we hope to be able to do the same thing, but in the way that we're called to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he he talked about sheep, he used lambs to express his stories, and we like to be able to do the same thing, even though um, ours may be a little bit brighter and have special effects and lights and things like that um, to make up for, uh, you know, the difference there. But we, um, stories unite people, and that's something that we continue to just be passionate about is bringing the Bible to life on stage and using the stories to bring, to bring people together. Despite the demands of the productions, Sight and Sounds puts out new shows regularly. We premiere a brand new show every other year. And then in the years in between the brand new shows, we absolutely do bring shows back to our stages again. Um, So we kind of, you know, Disney has their version of The Vault, and we do too. We put our shows, um, you know, to rest for a couple of years until um, a new audience of children and families is here and ready to experience them again. And so um, they absolutely do, most of them, come back to the stage. There are some that we have entirely retired, or we know that when they do come back, we want to tell them a little bit differently. But for the most part, um, you know, our hope is that our shows continue to... um, to last in, in the timelessness that they are and come back from year to year. And uh, for those that have, you know, may not have been able to see Jonah this year, then we hope to have it back in a couple of years again to, to experience it again. For more on Sight and Sound and upcoming shows, visit sight-sound.com. Also, look for a link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. about our trip to Lancaster, I was really excited because I knew that was in the middle of Amish country and I always wanted to experience what it would be like to live and work on an Amish farm, but I'm surprised that we got so much more. Lancaster is more than just Amish country. I was surprised by the food scene. I was surprised by Gosh, sight and sound really uh, shocked me uh, in a wonderful way. I mean, it was like a Broadway production on a stage that brought Bible stories to life. And I was surprised at how large it was. 
the uh, the facility it was it was almost like an MGM casino or something. It was that large. Yeah, it was truly impressive. And I think the thing that impressed me most about this trip to Lancaster is that unlike when I visited as a kid and would go to Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and visit the Amish farm and house and go to Dutch Wonderland, which was probably one of my favorite amusement parks as a kid, and it's still operating today. The new Lancaster, as I like to call it, really puts quite a focus on food. The Central Market in downtown Lancaster is fantastic. Uh, Just great food products from the local area. The hotels, the Cork Factory Hotel, the Lancaster Arts Hotel, where we uh, enjoyed a wonderful dinner there that night with our family. But what impressed me most about Lancaster this time in, in my life is just how transformed the city and how interesting it is to a visitor today. You've got great hotels, historic hotels like the Cork Factory Hotel and the Lancaster Arts Hotel, which has a wonderful restaurant that we enjoyed dinner at one night, and plus the traditional attractions too, such as the Strasbourg Railroad and the Amish Farm. And they, they work very hard to preserve their history, and I think that was one of the things I really appreciated. The longhouse that we went into, I think that's the only one in survival. I mean, it's manufactured, but at least, you know, it gives people an insight into how Native Americans did live back then. And then the Rockford Plantation and uh, Hanser House. Again, these are the places that you would not necessarily think of seeing when you visit uh, Lancaster. There are parts of the Underground Railroad that you can visit in nearby communities. Plus, there are vineyards, too, that are nearby. So there's a lot to see and do. And, of course, it is uh, Amish country, um, and there are a lot of commercial Amish farms to tour. And we toured one of them, I thought, we would actually see a real Amish farm. Um, But we toured a house, and um, the guides, you know, one of the things that I did enjoy about this uh, this tour, even though it was in a, you know, a commercial, uh, it was a commercial tour in a manufactured uh, Amish home, um, I learned little things that, like how to identify a Mennonite uh, woman and an Amish woman. Um, and it's the identification comes in their bonnet. Uh, and so I thought I found that interesting. And then just to see a, a working farm, mind you, again, it was a commercial working farm, but to see some of the tools that they um, they use and um, to see, you know, to, just to get a visual of how uh, a real farm appears. Um, and one of the fun things that we did, my dear, you might remember, we tried to uh, we tried to work our way through a corn maze. And from the outside, the corn maze looked really simple. And I thought when we went into it, oh, this, you know, we'll be out in five minutes. Um, but we got lost. It was deeper and more intricate than um, appeared. And um, you guys cheated. You and your cousins who joined us cheated and walked through the corn maze. I didn't want to. And I think it took me maybe 15 minutes longer to find my way out. But (laughs) that was our Amish country experience. But that's okay. It was muddy. It was a bog. And, uh, you know, we're just city people and we can't be bothered with with a bunch of mud. (laughs) Well, I'm a country girl. So as we close, we'd like to leave you with the words of French writer and novelist Gustave Flaubert. 
travel makes one modest. You see what a tiny place you occupy in the world. Thank you so much for inviting us into your home to share the joys of our world. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to taking you on our next adventure on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.